Good morning, Journey. So a year ago, I walked into my counselor's office, um, and I found myself in a similar scenario to where we found Elijah last week. We said last week that sometimes the power of God is not enough to help the people of God have hope in the plan of God. And that, that was me a year ago. The power of God was like all over what was going on in our church. We just finished a two-year building campaign. We'd moved into a brand new building. Hundreds and hundreds of new people were coming. Dozens and dozens were making spiritual decisions. But the power that was taking place in the church was not translating to my life. It was like the stronger our church became, kind of the weaker my spirit felt. So I walked in a week ago, um, a year ago this week, I walked into my counselor's office um, and kind of said, I, you know, I, I think I need some help. Like I pulled a Bugs Bunny on him. I was like, okay, like what's up, doc? Like how, like, how can you help me? Because my life looked a little bit like Elijah's. Remember the snapshot that we gave of Elijah last week. In the midst of a move of God, like his spirit was leaking spiritually. I looked at my life and I don't want to say I was afraid, but after two years as a leader, kind of trying to troubleshoot um, every worst case scenario that never actually happened, I had hardwired my brain to be afraid of the unknown and to react to things that weren't even happening. Um, I felt like I was living life on the run, like I, like I had pressed the, the pedal down so hard to push to get into our building that once we got in the building, I did not know, like it was like the pedal was stuck. I couldn't pull it up. I couldn't slow down at all. I didn't feel alone, but I think I had isolated myself into thinking that I was solely responsible um, if anything went wrong. So I felt a little bit alone. I didn't want to die, but emotionally, like I knew I was at an unsustainable uh, place. I knew I was panting a little bit emotionally and that, that I was in a little bit of trouble. I don't want to say I felt a generational curse, but I knew the statistic that 50% of pastors within two years of building a building resigned from their churches because of the push that they have to put on it. And I just thought, you know, I didn't feel cursed, but I thought maybe Maybe I'm on the wrong side of the statistic. Maybe I just don't have it. Um, maybe I got the church and somebody's supposed to take it to the next place because I was exhausted. And I was just exhausted. So I went into my counselor and I said, you know, what, what's going on and how can you, how can you help me? Um, I want to continue, but man, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, and he, like we studied last week, he said, man, Christian, your struggle is real, but the supernatural is within reach. Your struggle is real, but the supernatural is within reach. But he began to talk me through some of the things we learned in the life of Elijah last week. The supernatural is in reach. But listen, you gotta, you got to learn to turn off the wrong voices. The, that voice in your head of fear. That voice in your head of not trusting people. That voice in your head of thinking you need to control thinking. That voice in your head of thinking you need to be prepared for all ten things that will go wrong. That voice in your head that says don't give too much for your staff uh, to your staff or you're going to bury them. Like you got to learn how to turn off those voices and you got to learn to trust God. You got to learn to trust people. And Christian, you got to start trimming your schedule. You're just simply doing too much. You can't do at your church what you do now and act like it was your church five years ago that had five or six families in it. Like your life has to change a little bit. So if you can learn to slow down enough to begin to hear the voice of God on a daily basis and in a healthy dose, like this can be fixed. But Christian, you're going to have to make some changes. It was over the next 12 weeks probably the most humbling and most healthy season that my life ever went through 
is I, is I kind of said no to a lot of things I'd already said yes to. Speaking at NFL chapels, two that I'd agreed to. No, I can't do it. Speaking at Fellowship of Christian Athletes event, one with the Chiefs, one at Municipal Auditorium. Sorry, I can't do it. Canceling two mission trips I was supposed to lead to Kenya with our church, to Peru with a Compassion International team. Sorry, I can't go. Meeting with my staff and apologizing them to them for trying to do everything myself and saying, I'm going to need you guys to help me. Meeting with my elders and saying, I'm going to have to ask you guys to do more. Meeting with my personnel team and asking them to fire me as the church planner who started the church and to rehire me as the lead pastor of the church where it was now because I couldn't run everything like I used to when there were a hundred people. It was humbling, but it was healthy. And when I got to that end of the, the end of that process, I realized that once again, I could train my ear. If I slowed down enough, I could train my ear to hear from God again. And I wasn't the first one to go through this process. I'm not the last one that's going to go through this process. But my prescription for health came from a 3,000-year-old story that's found in 1 Kings chapter 19 that we've been studying. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 19 with me because we're going to jump back into the life in the ministry of Elijah on his worst day where God began to nurse him back to health. If you have your bulletin, take out your sermon notes or fire up your app so that you can follow along with us today. Because we're in a series called Whispers. And the whole point of this series is so that we can learn how to hear the voice of God. You say, Christian, why is it important as a Christian that I hear the voice of God? Well, so that you can know the will of God. It's important to hear the voice of God so that you can hear God's direction when you have to make decisions in life. It's important to hear the voice of God because sometimes we need some supernatural comfort in very difficult circumstances. It's important to hear the voice of God because sometimes we need to have hope in situations that really seem hopeless. But we asked last week, what happens when life hurts too much to hear? Or what happens when life hurts too much to believe what you hear? That's what we've spent two weeks trying to answer that question. And last week, we diagnosed the hurt. We said, this is a snapshot of suffering. This is what Elijah looks like. Maybe it's what you look like. But there is hope. We diagnosed the hurt, and we said there's hope. This week, we begin to heal that hurt if you, like me, a year ago, will begin to walk through the exact same prescription that God gave Elijah for getting healthy. We pick back up with him in 1 Kings chapter 1846. We'll read to 19 verse 18. And here's what it says. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. His greatest ministry day wraps up this way. Verse, chapter 19 verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life when he came to Beersheba and Judah. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. That's where we left him last week. So what happens to the sleeping prophet under the bush in the desert? Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. 
The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out, stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophet to the death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. It's actually Syria, not Israel. Aram was what it was called then. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And by the way, yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You know, I find it ironic how little has changed in 3,000 years of history as we try to hear from God or under, as we try to understand what God is doing. I mean, just in the last six weeks, we have been living in a snapshot of this. The wind came, right? The winds of Harvey, the, the winds of Irma, like the winds came and we wondered, where is God? You know, as all this natural disaster breaks our world apart, where is God? Is he in this? And there aren't a lot of answers to those things. The earthquakes came. Within the last six weeks, Mexico, a portion of it, was leveled by an earthquake that killed hundreds. And we look at that and say, where is God when that kind of thing happens? The fires continue to burn in northern California to this day across Napa Valley. And we ask, where is God in the fires? Yet within this series, we've stopped looking outside and we've started looking inside. And some of us have begun to hear the whisper of God on our heart. And in the midst of a world filled with devastating winds and earthquakes and fires, God, for the first time, has our attention through the whispers of his scripture. But not everyone is able to hear those because some are living in so much hurt that it's just the pain is too loud to hear the voice of God. So we're trying to figure out how can we heal the pain so that we can hear the voice of God. And really, this message today, hopefully, will accomplish two things. If you're here today and you're hurting personally, I've got a prescription for you to heal spiritually. God gave it to Elijah about a year ago. My counselor pointed me in the same direction. But if you're here today and say, I'm not hurting spiritually, you know someone who is. Maybe today is the day for you to learn so you can teach. Maybe today's message is not for you, but it's someone you're going to have lunch with tomorrow or have coffee with by the end of the week because this prescription is a prescription for spiritual healing, whether it's yours or someone else's. What do we learn that God did for Elijah to begin to heal his soul. Three things that I want to show you today. Number one, God gave Elijah time and space to hear from him. God gave Elijah time and he gave him space to hear from him. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. After a hundred mile journey, running from fear, running from the enemy, running to the point where he was alone. It says the angel touched him and said, go again. Verse 8. So he got up, he ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, three things in Elijah's life that apply to us today, I believe, as we try to heal spiritually. One, 40 days. 
You know, almost every time this time frame is used in the Bible, 40 days, it's a spiritual time frame used by God to prepare people for what's next in life. 40 days. Noah spent 40 days listening to the rainfall on top of the boat so he could prepare his heart for what was next. Some of you went to sleep last night listening to the rain hit. Think if that was 40 days and 40 nights. Think if a deluge came, how much urgent but unimportant stuff you would not get to in the next 40 days. It might actually quiet your life a little bit. Noah had 40 days. Moses had not just 40 days on a mountain with God. He spent 40 years in a desert trying to figure out what God's will was for his life. And Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness really understanding spiritual temptation before he set out in ministry. This 40 days is a pretty important thing. Some of you are saying, Christian, I've not heard from God yet. My question to you would be, what day are you on? Say, what do you mean? I mean, some of you are saying, well, Christian, you know, I read my Bible yesterday. I didn't hear from God yet. Okay, what day are you on? Because Elijah heard from God on day 41. After taking 40 days to quiet his life, quiet his soul, give God space, on day 41, God spoke. Some of you remember, we have God on this college professor rule, right? If he's five minutes late, we don't have time for him. If he's a PhD, if he's 15 minutes late, like we're out. Some of us say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, but hurry up. Remember, we said we want a God who will text us, not call us, because that takes too long. She said, Christian, I haven't heard from God yet. What day are you on? Did you quit after two? Did you quit after 12? Did you quit after 20? On day 41, Elijah heard from God. Where? On the mountain of God. This mountain of God was the place in the Old Testament where people met with God. It was on the Sinai Peninsula. It was also known as Mount Sinai. It was where Moses spoke to God, and God from this mountain spoke to all the people of Israel. Where's the place you meet with God? Where's the chair in your house you can point to and say, that's where I meet with God? What room in your basement is the room you meet with God? What parking stall at your work is the place you show up 15 minutes early every day because it's the only quiet place in your life to meet with God. A year ago, we taught through Psalm 23, and we said every Christian needs a green pasture. A green pasture is where we quiet our life, we settle down, and we hear from God. Where is your place? If you don't have a place, you won't have a time. So Elijah ran to the mountain of God because that was the place where people met with God, and that was the place he wanted to meet with God. I can tell who people are consistent. If I ask people, are you consistent in your quiet time? People who are consistent, they have a place, they have a time. It's the same place in the same time over and over. People who work out have a time and a place. People who do anything consistently do it at the same time and usually in the same place. This is how we build discipline. And then it says the Lord came to him. Forty days on the mountain of God, the Lord came to him because once Elijah began to be still, God began to speak. Now, it took an awful circumstance to get him there. He was running for his life. He was on Israel's top 10 most wanted list. The king and his wife wanted him dead. So he was forced into solitude. He was forced to be still. He was forced to slow down. But he was there nevertheless. And once he began to be still, God began to speak. And look at the question God asked him. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, you could phrase that question another way in the Hebrew language, and it would be the exact same question. The question would sound like this. What did you do to end up here, Elijah? Let me ask you that question about your life this morning. What did you do to end up right where you are? What have you done? What decisions have you made to end up right where you are? 
And do you need different decisions moving forward? If you want to invite the voice of God to speak into your life? Because if you do, you have to choose that. But if you don't choose it, it'll be forced upon you. I'll never forget sitting with my counselor last fall and him saying, Christian, here's the good news. You have an opportunity now to choose to get healthy. You can choose to step back. And if you step back and begin to really center your life around resting and hearing from God, that will happen. You will get healthy. But he said, regardless, if you don't choose it, it will be forced upon you. You're running at an unsustainable pace right now. And if you don't choose to stop, your body will just stop. Your soul will shut down. You'll be done. So he said, you can choose it or it can be forced upon you. But either way, you're going to end up in the exact same place. So would, wouldn't you rather be in charge of that timing? I got a letter from a single dad in our church on Monday that hit my inbox. After I talked talk last week about people realizing they need to stop but not being willing to, not being miserable enough yet. And here's what this single dad wrote to me last week. Christian, I wanted to take a moment and let you know how encouraging and challenging Sunday's message was. I am living the results of not making needed changes at the right time. The pain wasn't great enough until it was too late. I was the husband who would not take off work for my wife and family. I was the husband who would work late because it was what the job required and I did not put boundaries on my job. I was the husband that did not take the family on a vacation because I could not free up the money. I'm not responsible for my wife's choices, but I was the husband who created an environment for our marriage to fall apart. Once I began to make the needed changes, my wife was already gone. Divorce has caused me to take time off from my kids, to meet with a lawyer, to move from my house into a new house. Divorce has caused me to set boundaries at my job because I can't work late on the weeks that I have my kids. Divorce has caused me to come up with $4,500, not for vacation, but to pay for the divorce. I wish everyone would hear and truly listen to Sunday's message. Everyone will make a change in their life. It just depends on when that change is going to come. Is the change going to come proactively to prevent hurt and pain? Or is it going to be reactive when you're trying to put the pieces back together? That's not me. That's not Elijah. That's not God. It's a dad in our church who says, you're right. God's right. Elijah was right. I've lived it. Man, tell the people, change before it's too late. That's just a single dad who cares about you. And wants to say, slow down. Choose to slow down before it's forced on you. What will it take for you to finally be still? Number one, God gave Elijah time and space to hear from him. Number two, God gave Elijah community. He gave him community that would help him carry his spiritual burden. So he gave him time and space and said, you can choose to slow down and make time for me and family, or it can be forced upon you. But if you're going to get healthy, you're going to have to engage in community. Look at verses 15 and 16. Elijah said, they're trying to kill me. I don't think I can do it anymore. The Lord said to him, verse 15, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Hazael, Jehu, and Elijah. It's funny how many times this happens in the plan of God for the people of God. Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. You know when you look at scripture, if you wanted to put yourself in scripture and be used by God, you're going to learn that every Christian should really have no less than three people that they live in spiritual community with so their burdens are never too heavy to carry. Like you see it all over scripture. With Elijah, it was going to be Hazael, Jehu, Elisha. Jesus had Peter, James, and John. Right? The apostle Paul had Silas and Timothy and Titus. Shoot, even the beetle Paul had Ringo, George, and John. Like, right? I mean, everyone has three. If you're under 40, ask an older person. They'll tell you what that means. Like everyone, right? 
I mean, had at least three. So who, let me ask you, who are your three? I mean, if you were to jump into the Bible and live successfully, you'd have three people in your life. Who are your three? If you know them, just go ahead and write their initials down. But let me rephrase the question and make sure I'm asking it right, the right way. Who are the three people in your life that know the deepest, heaviest burdens that you're carrying right now and they're praying for you today? I'm not talking about your church friends. That's not community. Who are the three people aware of the deepest, heaviest burdens that you're carrying right now? And today they woke up aware of that and praying for you and they're thinking about you today. Who are the three people? You know, I would guess 90% of Christians say, I don't have anyone like that. You're not really set up for spiritual health if you don't. You know, I've learned in nearly 20 years of ministry that the greatest thing a church can offer you is not a service. It's a small group. Like the greatest thing a church can offer to people who come to the church is not what we're doing today, even though what we're doing today is great. My goodness, worship was awesome this morning. I hope you're going to learn something from the teaching of God's word. But, but I had a professor say, listen, church isn't even church until you move out of rows and into circles. When you're in rows, you're watching. When you're in circles, you're having church. Because when life hurts, people matter. When life hurts, people matter. So when my life doesn't hurt right now, when my life hurts, I'll call people. Guess what? Then it's going to be too late. Why should someone invest in you when you hurt if you won't invest in them just for friendship? When life hurts, people matter. We have a man in our church named Tony who on Tuesday received a liver transplant at the Mayo Clinic. He contracted a very rare blood disease that was destroying his liver, and he was not going to make it without a liver transplant. So on Tuesday, he had a successful liver transplant. His mother-in-law was actually a match for his liver and gave him part of her liver, which means he is the luckiest and the unluckiest guy in the world at the same time because he's going to live, but like she owns him. Like, right? Like everyone knows, like, I know where you're eating Thanksgiving and Christmas and going on Mother's Day for like the rest of your life because like she doesn't just own you. She's in you, man. Like she's a part of you right now. Two weeks before he went up to the Mayo Clinic, he asked the pastors and some of the elders of our church to anoint him with oil and pray over him. So we did one Sunday as we were leaving church. And someone snapped a picture while we were praying with him and they sent it to me and said, Pastor Christian, what, a, what an awesome sight. And I looked at that and I thought, that's church. This isn't church. This is a service. That's, that's a church right there. You know how many of those people Tony and his wife Casey knew when they moved here from Wyoming? Zero. You know how many of those people they could have made it without as they walked through this last few years of his sickness? Zero. They don't have any family here. But man, they got a big old church that knows them, that loves them, that's been feeding for them, that's been praying them, that's been watching their kids, that's been helping them get back and forth to Minneapolis. That's church. Elijah didn't have that. God said, you're going to need that. So go find Hazael, go find Jehu, go find Elisha. You really can't stay real spiritually healthy unless you have some people that are fighting for you on a daily basis. Elijah didn't have it, but he needed it. So how do I begin to get healthy, Christian? Give God time and space in your life. Pursue and live in spiritual community. It might look different from everyone, but boy, if you don't have three that you can group text every day of your life, and say, man, pray for me. You don't have what God wants you to have. And then number three, pursue the mission of God in your life. This is a really interesting point. Because Elijah went to God and said, God, unless I get healthy, I cannot do what you've called me to do. And God said, unless you, call, unless you do what I've called you to do, you're not going to get healthy. 
Let me say it again. God, I can't, get, I can't do what you've called me to do unless I get healthy. And God says, no, no, no. You can't get healthy unless you do what I've called you to do because your mission and your spiritual health go together. So Elijah says, I can't live for you because they're going to kill me. And God says, no, they're not. Look at verse 17 and 18. God said, no, they're not. Here's what's going to happen. Jehu is going to put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha is going to put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. They're not going to kill you. And yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal or whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, your job as prophet is to teach the people about God and teach them to worship your job. That, that's your job. Your calling is to make sure Israel knows God. Elijah says, I can't do that until I get healthy. And God says, you can't get healthy until you do that. And here's what you need to know, Elijah. Your spiritual community is going to support your spiritual calling. God was going to give Elijah this big spiritual community, not just three, but this big spiritual community that was going to support his calling. God said, there's 7,000 in Israel. You're not aware of them, but they're there. Who are they? They're people who want to worship God. They don't know how. Your calling is to go teach them. God told Elijah, not only are you not alone, you're not done. Elijah said, I'm alone, so I'm done. And God said, no, you're not alone, and you're not done. You've got community you're going to lean into, and then you've got calling that you have to complete. And there are 7,000 people that we find out would literally join ministry schools that Elijah would begin to train to help people minister in Israel. Elijah would leave this mountain all alone, all alone, and on the final day of his life, my second favorite story in the life of Elijah, on the final day of his life in 2 Kings chapter 2, God said, your ministry's done, you're going to go to heaven today. And Elijah said, okay. But on his way to go to heaven, he had to stop by three different cities to go to three different schools to tell these guys what was happening and to say goodbye. Elijah went from I'm all alone and it's not working to I, I have no concern about what God's called me to do because I've passed it on to these guys and they're going to do it now. The schools of the prophets in Gilgal, in Bethel, in Jericho. Elijah was like, you guys got it. I'm going to heaven today. His life was radically transformed by leaning into his calling. He went from doing everything by himself and burning out to having to do nothing at all because he passed it on to the next generation. That's my second favorite story about Elijah. You say, what's your first favorite? I'm glad you asked because I didn't even know it was my first favorite until 90 days ago. That used to be my first favorite, but now I have a, few, a, a new favorite because in July, I spent an afternoon at the Tel Dan Nature Reserve in northern Israel. Dan is an ancient city, 3,000 years old, that they've uncovered and I am literally taking this picture, looking out the gates of ancient Dan. I'm sitting, if you'll go to the next slide, where the king would sit to receive people. Now you're looking into it. You can see that raised platform. That's where the kings of Israel would sit to receive visitors as people came into the ancient city of David. And our tour guide told us these stones that you're walking on in these walls are 3,000 years old. Elijah would have walked right through that corridor to confront the kings of Israel. You're standing on stones that the prophet Elijah would have stood on. He says, so that makes it your favorite moment? No, it's more than that. Because within the streets of Tel Dan, they found an inscription that they were able to piece back together that's now known as the Tel Dan Stele. So what is a Tel Dan Stele? It's the first time in modern archaeology they ever found the name David in Israel. That little white cutout part, if you read it there, right to left, says Beit David. It means the house of David. Up until 1993, skeptical scholars used to say the Old Testament can't be true because we can't find David. 
And if we can't find David, he didn't kill Goliath. And if we can't find David, there is no Davidic covenant. If we can't find David, Israel's not important. If there is no David, there is no Israel. It's not important. And guess what? In 1993, they're digging around the streets of Tel Dan, and they find David. Guess who wrote that? Anybody want to take a guess? Hazael, the king of Aram. When he came to defeat Israel, like Elijah told him to, he inscribed on a stone not only that he defeated the house of Omri, which was Ahab's dad, but he said, I also defeated the house of David in my fight. 3,000 years after God intended for Elijah to get healthy, 2 billion Christians around the world and tens of millions of Jews were able to have confidence in this scripture because of something that a foreign king wrote bragging that he had destroyed Israel. And as I'm sitting at Tel Dan that day, God whispers in my heart, Christian, spiritual healing is never just for you. I heal people so they'll give hope to others. You see, Elijah's spiritual healing on this day wasn't just for him. I healed Elijah because I knew 3,000 years later, a, a skeptical, scholarly world would question the Old Testament, but I healed Elijah so that the world one day would experience hope through that healing. If some of you are sitting here today and you're trying to decide whether or not you've got what it takes to step out of your hurt and into your healing, do it. Do it because your healing is hope for somebody else. Because when we heal enough to begin to hear from God and walk with God enough, God doesn't just use that in our life. The people whose lives we touch are given hope because we've been healed. What if your healing leads to hope for your kids? What if your healing leads to hope for your grandkids? What if your healing, this sounds crazy, but let's just think about it. What if your healing would lead to the greatest archaeological discovery in the last thousand years? You say, Christian, that's nonsense. What do you think Elijah would have thought that day? If when God told him, you're going to go do this for Hazael, because here's the deal. In 3,000 years, they're going to be digging around in the rocks. And they're going to find something that he wrote. It's going to be really important for the hope of the Christian world. Elijah would have been like, that's crazy. All Elijah knew is that God healing him meant hope for others. You know, I've heard from four couples this week, four couples this week who are considering getting divorces. First one, when I got home, was already in my email inbox after last week's message. Christian, you said we don't act until it's too late. It's too late. We're getting a divorce. I should have told you six months ago we were having marriage problems. Can you help us? And for some reason, all week long, people reached out that said, I don't know if my marriage is going to make it. Stay in your marriage. Fight. Because the healing in your marriage is going to bring hope to your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. Fight. Keep pursuing that friend who needs Jesus. Forgive the person who's hurt you. Because your healing is going to bring hope to somebody else. Say, Christian, man, I just don't have time for all this stuff. Sometimes you got to take time. Did a wedding in Longview, Texas yesterday. Flew out at 5 a.m. Got home last night at 11.30. It was a long day, to say the least. And as I'm sitting in the Dallas airport at 8 o'clock, watching the storms come across Kansas City, started texting our staff. And I said, guys, I don't know who I'm going to make it home. Who wants to preach? Anybody got anything to say? Like, you know, what, like, what are we going to do? I may be stuck in Dallas. And they boarded the flight. And Daniel's texting me, it's storming really bad here. And they board the flight and the pilot gets on the intercom and he says, you know, I'm sure you're all aware of the weather in Kansas City. He said, let me tell you what we're going to do. He said, we're going to leave Dallas and we're going to fly west, almost to New Mexico. 
Then we're going to head north, almost to Nebraska. And then we're going to drop in behind the storm in Kansas City. It'll still be storming there. It'll take twice as long. But if we go the long route, I can get you home safely. Say, Christian, I don't have time to slow down. Listen, if you will slow down for God, he'll get you home safely. If you will be still, it might take a whole lot longer than what life looks like today, but God will get you home safely. If you will pull back and give God a time and a place, if you will take time that you don't have to engage in community, and if you will begin to live in your calling, even though you don't have time, it may take you a long time to get there, but God can get you home safely. There wasn't a person on the plane that said, fly through the storms, because we'd have kicked him off. It was like, dude, you can fly to California and Canada, like whatever it takes, just get me on the ground safely. Why do you want to keep running through the storms instead of slowing down to meet with God? Why do you insist on always trying to do things the fastest way instead of slowing down to live in community? Why are you rushing off to the next thing instead of leaning into calling? I watched our little flight tracker as we headed north over Lubbock, as we flew over western Kansas randomly. I couldn't see the weather map, but I thought, you know what? I know this guy's going to keep us safe. So wherever he wants to take us, I'll go at his pace, as long as he gets me home safe. Man, if we would take that view spiritually, I promise you God can land the plane. But you got to take your hands off the wheel and say, okay, God, on your timing, at your pace, under your circumstances, with your community leaning into your calling, all right, go, just land the plane safely. Don't ever forget what you learned today. Because God has given us a prescription for how to get healthy, for how to heal. Be still. Live in community. Pursue your calling. If you will do those things, God can land the plane. Will you pray with me?